welcome to another episode of the Queen's Management School Good Business Podcast. My name is Laura Steele and I'm a lecturer in business and society within the school. The aim of the podcast is to go beyond the bottom line and examine the ethical, social and environmental responsibilities of businesses. And in this episode, we'll be focusing on the topic of photography ethics. A subject that you, perhaps like me, have not previously given much thought to, but one that we'd be very wise to consider. We've certainly come a long way from the early days of the photograph when crude images were produced by cameras that required at least eight hours of exposure, hardly conducive to a selfie. Unsurprisingly, the time and expense involved tended to make photography the preserve of a wealthy few. However, in recent decades, the advent of the digital camera, which has subsequently embedded into our smartphones, has had a democratising effect. Indeed, it's estimated that we will take over 1.2 trillion photographs in 2019 alone. But while the technology has advanced at an astonishing rate, individuals and organisations have been left grappling with a host of accompanying ethical concerns. These range from the morality of manipulating images to issues of theft and plagiarism, and even whether a person can truly give informed consent where there's a power imbalance between the photographer and their subject. To discuss these issues, I'm delighted to be joined by Savannah Dodd, photographer, anthropologist and founder of the Photography Ethics Centre. Savannah, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. So firstly, I'm really intrigued to find out which aspect of your career came first. Was it photographer, anthropologist, and have you been able to combine the two? Absolutely. So I think actually photography came first for me because I started it at quite a young age. Um, I really started it, I guess, in earnest when I was about 16 and anthropology sort of didn't come along until I was about 19. So I was already taking pictures when I started studying anthropology. Um, But absolutely, to answer your question, like I have definitely been able to combine the two, although I think for many years... I sort of practice photography uh, on the side, so maybe to pick up a couple jobs or to do it for myself, but I never really viewed it as a core component of my career. Um, And that all changed about five to seven years ago when I sort of started to realize, well, five years ago probably, I started to realize that anthropology can help my photography a lot and my photography can help my anthropology a lot, and I started to sort of develop the, the relationship between the two in my own practice. And when did you start to become aware of the ethical concerns within photography? I think personally it was quite gradual. So I was practicing photography alongside studying anthropology. And I think that my the things that I was learning in anthropology about how to ethically gain access to communities, how to ethically obtain consent, how to work with people. I think that that was sort of subconsciously impacting my photography. And it was only really after I graduated from my master's and I took a step back from anthropology and I threw myself more into the world of photography and started talking with other photographers that I began to realize that I had picked up a skill that I hadn't realized I'd picked up and that that skill could help other people. So that was sort of, I guess, it, it was a very slow sort of awareness, I guess, that was sort of a creeping effect into my into my photography. So how did that then lead you into setting up the Photography Ethics Centre? So I started attending more uh, artist talks, more exhibitions, more events in the photography world. And through all those things and through conversations with other photographers, I I realized that everybody has a story to tell about photography ethics in their own lives. They have either seen something that they weren't sure about, they did something themselves that they weren't so sure about, or, or something happened to them that they didn't feel comfortable with in terms of photography. And I think that the prevalence of all these stories and all these people's 
sort of general discomfort or uncertainty about what the right thing to do is, I realized that this sort of the skills that I've developed in anthropology can really um, maybe help if, if I sort of made that more accessible, made that knowledge more accessible to people who are working with photographs. So I think that that's really, I guess, how it came about. Um, there were a couple, a couple exhibitions in specific that I attended and, you know, raised questions about consent or questions about, um, you know, how we navigate ourselves in a space as a photographer. And I think that a lot of the responses that I got felt insufficient or not well interrogated. And I don't think that it's any, I don't think it's malicious. You know, I don't think that it's intentional to be that photographers maybe act unethically sometimes, but I think it's just really from a lack of awareness or a lack of, um, sort of having the space and the time to think about these things. That's really what I'm hoping to provide with the Photography Ethics Center is I'm, I'm hoping to provide people who take and share photographs with an opportunity to think critically about the ethics of the process so that when people think critically about it before they get into that situation, then they can respond in a way that more closely aligns with their own personal values when they actually are faced with that situation. Does that make sense? It does. And it's so similar to many other things that arise in terms of ethical scandals that it doesn't generally involve individuals who went in, as you put it so perfectly, with a desire to do something malicious or to act in a way that is unethical. But really, a lot of it comes from, I would call it the four main, um, the four main drivers being um, laziness, haziness, greed and speed. So often it's a lack of critical reflection before somebody enters into that particular situation and then they find themselves doing something that they mightn't otherwise have wanted to do. And then the problem then that can arise is that either they attempt to cover it up because they're ashamed of it or if it does come to public attention then they end up being utterly reviled and there's no opportunity for learning there, there's no opportunity to redress the situation and perhaps do things differently in future. So I see a huge amount of similarities between what you're describing in the context of photography and many other aspects of, of business, absolutely. Absolutely. I think those four things that you pointed out really uh, resonate for sure. And what you're saying as well about not having those opportunities to to learn from these things. I think that's a real, I think it's a real missed opportunity. And I think you see this all the time in the photography industry where, you know, bad practices highlighted and like you said you know maybe the photographer becomes very defensive people become very uh, attacking and instead it wouldn't it be great if we could just say you know what on reflection I wouldn't have done that yes. you're totally right and this is what I'm going to do in the future you know I think that there's a real opportunity for everybody to maybe to maybe benefit from those moments and unfortunately I think the way that it's done and the way that people are sort of um, named and shamed creates that you know um Absolutely. Because I'm actually really thinking just about how acutely those four factors are represented in photography because you've got greed. You know, people can make an enormous amount of money from photographs. And I think particularly the likes of the paparazzi trying to secure that, you know, that hot image that will perhaps make them sort of tens of thousands of pounds. You've got speed that possibly more than many other areas of business, you have a moment to capture a photograph and maybe you're so focused on you know getting that that you don't think about the ethical issueness or the ethical issues involved. Laziness, um, certainly not taking that time to critically reflect on things. And then haziness, which goes back to really a lot of what you've just said, that people just don't actually understand what the issues are. So I think those are really pronounced in the context of photography. Absolutely. I 
I, I would really agree with, with all of that. I think especially in terms, you know, when it comes to the greed um, aspect of it, you know, photography is a very competitive industry, Absolutely. you know, and people are very much in competition with each other and you, you have to set yourself apart and you have to do it quickly and you have to do it, you know. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think it really, that I don't know, those four things are very relevant. What services have you started to offer through the Photography Ethics Centre that people can take advantage of? So I have an online training program that is currently live. Um, the one that's available now is a very basic introduction to photography ethics, and it's available for free through the Thompson Foundation's Journalism Now platform. And then I also do workshops. So I do workshops for um, academic institutions, uh, art institutions, um, all sorts of, of different uh, groups that would benefit from uh, a workshop on photography ethics. And I also do consulting services, so that would be sort of targeted mostly at media and development organizations to help define a uh, set of guidelines for ethical visual media practice and conduct staff training on the guidelines. And you also have some fabulous free videos as well, featuring the likes of Grey's Anatomy, where people can watch clips of, of well-known films and TV programs and see how photography ethics can come into play there too. Yeah, absolutely. I try to sort of isolate, I guess, moments that we might find ourselves in. Yes. Um, and I think when you can see that represented in a short clip from something that's already very familiar, it's easier maybe to, to identify that in, in our own practice, in our own lives. What would be the main ethical issues that you would see arising time and again within the context of photography? I think I, I tend not to talk too much about ethical issues and I talk more about ethical principles. So I might divert the question mm -hmm. a little bit in that direction, if that's okay with you. Um, because I think ethical, if we take an ethical principles basis, we can say, right, um, respect is important. And there are different issues that might arise with regard to respect. For example, um, not respecting somebody's right to uh, choose to be photographed or not photographed. That's a right based on the um, human rights of privacy uh, and dignity, right? Um, you might also have the ethical principle of responsibility. So you might in different situations realize, you know, my responsibility in this situation uh, is different from my responsibility in another situation. For example, um, in photojournalism, there is a sort of a, a core tenet of photojournalism is that you don't intervene in the scene. But, you know, at what point, if you're witnessing violence, at what point is your responsibility to intervene and protect someone outweigh your responsibility to document it, you know? So I think that there are a lot of, I don't think anything is clear cut, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I think it's all a matter of sort of approaching the situation as it stands um, from your own position, uh, taking into consideration the context, the things at stake, the stakeholders who are present and making ethical decisions as they rise in the moment. It does. And I'm thinking it's not in the context specifically of photography, but probably the most recent case where we've seen that principle of not intervening um, being brought to the public attention was the documentary, was it a, an Attenborough documentary featuring sort of the colony of penguins where they ended up in peril and the general principles of documentary making, particularly wildlife documentaries, is that you don't intervene in that situation. But the film crew decided to help fashion a path out of the ice and snow that allowed a significant number of them to make their way back up and ultimately survive. And I 
from reading around that that it's something that they certainly really wrestled with and that they wouldn't generally have intervened but something about that particular situation and the sheer number of of penguins that were involved made them decide to do something differently and I think that goes back to what you were saying that sometimes you really have to decide in the moment and I guess if you have that training then hopefully you are better placed to be able to make the what ultimately will be the right decision. Absolutely and that that example is a perfect illustration of it really um and and you know film ethics and photography ethics are very very similar you know um they there isn't a whole lot of difference between the two so so absolutely in a situation like that you know it is taking into consideration the specific situation that we have in a moment but like you said doing the thinking beforehand about where your red lines are, where your um, priorities lie as an individual, um, as a practitioner. I think that that's the really important work that we can do in advance of being faced with those ethical situations. And then also the ability and the being allowing people to turn around and say, well, actually, maybe I did make, not in that particular case, because I think they made the right decision, but in other situations where perhaps somebody makes a wrong decision, where they are allowed to hold their hands up and say, I wish I'd done this differently, but this is what I have learned, and perhaps you could learn from the mistakes that I have made. Absolutely. I think that's huge. I think the one maybe best thing, uh, it's hard to say, but I, I would say one of the best things we can do as photographers is to be transparent about our process and transparent about how we make our ethical decisions. I think in order to be transparent about how we do those things, we need to understand why we're doing them in the first yes. place. And I guess that's sort of the goal of uh, my trainings is to make people aware of how we make ethical decisions so that we can do that deliberately and so we can explain and justify our process. And like you said, if we get to the end of a situation and we say, actually, in the next time that happens, I'm going to handle that differently. That's a great thing to be transparent about as well. I think if we're, if we're not wanting to be transparent about our process, then maybe there's something, there's a reason why we're yes. not wanting to be transparent. And maybe that's a moment for self-reflection as well. Absolutely. And as I alluded to at the start, with the advent of the digital camera, and more recently when it's been integrated into smartphones, we're all photographers or we all have the capacity to be photographers now that we wouldn't have had in the past. We would have had to have gone to the studio, to the professional photographer and to pay them for what was usually quite a formal stylized shot. But now we have something in our pocket really at any given moment that allows us to take it out and, and take a photograph or to make a video. And in some senses that can be really positive it can draw attention to things that would otherwise have been um you know not captured but equally you've got this issue that sometimes people are capturing people at very vulnerable moments they're capturing people um, in states of crisis or distress and i'm thinking particularly of the case of danny mathers who's a californian model who surreptitiously took a photo of a 70 year old fellow female gym goer in a state of undress and captioned it if i can't unsee this then you can't either and posted it publicly on snapchat and there was a huge backlash naturally in relation to what she had done she lost her job at an la radio station and following charges was required to complete 30 days of community service for breaching that woman's privacy. Do you think that all of us now need to be mindful of the photographs that we take and why we're taking them and what we ultimately do with them? Absolutely. I, I think that that is a skill that we need to cultivate early on in children, perhaps. Yes. Like maybe this is something that needs to be taught in schools. Um, I think 
that we all have so much power to represent the world around us. And that is amazing because it means that we all have an opportunity to put forward our own um, self-representations, our own representations of the world. But I think, you know, every time we take and share a photograph, we are contributing to how other people understand the world around them. You know, just by virtue of sharing a photograph um, with my family back home of Belfast, I'm shaping their impression of Belfast to a certain extent, whether they want that, that to happen or not. You know, it's, it's, it's part of how, how we understand the world around us. And I think with that comes, comes really great responsibility. And I think we need to be very um, cognizant of, of what our representations are saying about the world around us. And, and how we how we do that and how we do that in a respectful, ethical um, way that respects everybody's dignity. Absolutely. I think it's very important that even the, you know, lay photographers are, are familiarized with the principles of photography ethics. And I think you've highlighted something so important around children because we've seen so many cases of children being the victims of, of photographs showing them perhaps in states of undress or in other vulnerable positions being shared with the likes of classmates or um, in several cases going much further and coming out into the public domain and so it perhaps is something that we really need to think about quite early on um, either in the context of people being um, sort of teachers administrators in school or parents about sort of instructing them about what is appropriate in terms of taking photographs how to protect themselves and also how to respect other people absolutely like i to be totally honest i'm really glad that i finished my school before Me too. the smartphone came out <laughs> you know I, I i think it has to be very difficult to be a young person right now with technology um and and the power to represent people and uh, the way it is now i think i just think that would be very very challenging but i think maybe the key lesson in that that would be useful is empathy you know, I think just teaching empathy and, and making people understand or, or helping children to understand that, you know, not only, you know, do unto others as you would want others to do unto you or however the, the saying goes, but also, you know, we're all we're all different individuals as well, you know, and, and just because I'm OK with something doesn't mean that you're OK with it. And so I need to not empathize with you from from my position, but try to understand where you're coming from, you know, try to understand your position as much as I can access it. Related to that, do you think we're starting to develop greater awareness of the power of photography, particularly in terms of how certain people, such as women, minorities and individuals with disabilities are being represented? I think that's a very difficult question to answer. I think that um, social media has done a lot to sort of raise awareness and maybe call out things that are not um, not respectful or don't respect people's dignity or doesn't empathize with the subject or doesn't challenge stereotypes. Um, I Like we sort of were talking about earlier, I think calling out sort of does raise awareness, but it only goes so far because it maybe doesn't allow for that moment of engagement where we're actually... Um, constructively breaking this down and talking about it and learning from it always sometimes it does um, but I think sometimes it can be a it takes a reactionary sort of yes. direction um, I think that instead of maybe talking about improved awareness I think that the the big thing to highlight here is the importance and the ability of with the democratization of photography and with digital photography in particular um, and social media and the internet of of 
enabling minority communities to self-represent. I think this is huge, and I think that um, more can be done to support photographers um, from minority communities to represent their own stories. I think that that is really, um, you know, when people are representing their own stories and 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 representing their community, the, the community of which they, they belong or they are part of, I think that we get maybe more nuanced stories, stories that are less steeped in stereotypes, less sort of simplified or gazy. And I think that there's just a lot of um, a lot of good work that's being done in that area. And I think that that's something that we should all sort of stay tuned to. Absolutely. And it relates to something else I wanted to ask you about. So one of the things I've learned from your really informative website, photoethics.org, is that photography within the context of development activities can raise particular concerns, for example, in relation to informed consent. Could you tell me a little bit about more, more about that? What issues does development throw up in terms of photography? Absolutely. There are uh, a wide variety of issues, actually, that, that come up when we talk about development photography. I think, um, first and foremost, if we think about um, the processes that take place a lot of times in development organizations for obtaining consent So for anybody yeah. who's not familiar with the terms of development, could you just describe what you consider to fall within the remit or the, the ambit of development work? Ooh, after divine development, and this is it. <laughs> Sorry, no, I, don't I, know it's a good, I'm trying to pass point. it on to you because I'm thinking to myself, how do I define development? But generally, would be associate I to, to put it in its most basic context around sort of the activities that would be conducted by governments, but particularly NGOs and charities, around going into countries where um, there are requirements to further develop certain aspects, be that infrastructure or education, healthcare, and we've seen it quite a lot. Say in the way of the most recently and um, there's been a lot of discussion around what happened in Haiti in terms of how the development money, money was spent in terms of rebuilding the country but also in relation to the actions of say workers from the likes of Oxfam and how they treated people so that is my very poor description of <laughs> development that maybe you could perhaps oh, improve. Probably better than I can do yeah I, I, I think I think what you said is is you know sums it up quite quite well. I think, you know, broadly, broadly speaking, I think development is a lot of times, um, you know, organizations of people not from a community going into another yes. community. And I think that that's sort of a key characteristic that's relevant for when we're talking about um, uh, photography ethics and consent. You know, it's it's often people from a um, high-income country or a high-income context going into a lower-middle-income context. So, the, immediately, the, the first problem we have is there's an inherent power imbalance in the development process. And that's that's there in the development process. That's not something that photography has brought. But photography adds another layer to this power imbalance. Because anytime we take a picture, there's already a power imbalance between the photographer and the one who's being photographed. Because the photographer has, has control, has power over how that person is going to be represented. Being photographed can be a very vulnerable experience. You know, you have to... You're really putting yourself out there um, to be represented by someone else. So when we add that into the mix of development, you've got um, you know individuals who are receiving uh, support from these organizations being asked to be photographed because of their receipt of this support. So they might be concerned that they can't say no. They might not feel able to say no. Actually, you know, I'm receiving 
food from this program, but I'm not comfortable being photographed. Because once they say no, they might worry that they won't be able to receive food anymore. So I think that there's, um, there's also the element of people maybe feeling indebted. So say that a community or a development organization goes in and installs a well and they say, right, we want to take pictures now of you getting water from your well. Well, they just gave you the well. You might not really feel like it's appropriate or okay to say, no, I don't want to be photographed. But we need to remember that just because, you know, photography and, and development are, are two different processes. And, and just because maybe someone has received benefits from an organization does not give anyone the inherent right to take their picture. Um, and people need to be able to say no because that is a, a key component of informed consent. So informed consent means that people understand where their photographs are going, why they're being photographed, how their photographs are going to be used, and that they can say no if they uh, don't feel comfortable. And so I think that that power imbalance really uh, challenges the ability to get informed consent. Another challenge to informed consent in development contexts is that a lot of times um, development projects take place in a context where maybe the recipients of uh, or the beneficiaries of a, of a development project might not have access to the internet. So if you're wanting to get informed consent and, you know, the person that you're speaking with, um, you want to use their photograph for Facebook. Well, maybe the person you're speaking with has never seen Facebook. They've never used the Internet. They're, they're not um, familiar with that. So how can you how can you give informed consent if you've never used that technology? So I think that that's um, another barrier. Um, in response to that, I think that what we could do is maybe break it down to the basic concept. So instead of saying, I'm going to use your photograph on Facebook, is that okay with you? You could say, I would like to post your picture to the internet. I, and you can name your number of followers. Say, you know, 5,000 people will probably see this photograph from all over the world. You know, so you can frame it in different ways that breaks it down to concept. So while I think that there are barriers to informed consent, I very much think it's possible if we take the time and we really engage with people on an individual basis. That was one of the most striking things for me was really understanding that you may going out, be going out and working with people who do not understand what the implications of what Facebook is, say, for example, Facebook or Twitter or any of those platforms, and how widely some of those photographs could be shared. But then I sometimes think as well that perhaps our own understanding is not quite as sophisticated as we might like it to be, because just this week, is, as we're preparing to record this, there's been the big Sephiroi over, is it face up? And the fact that people are using this to produce photographs of themselves that show their faces, perhaps, you know, I'm not sure, three, four decades down the line, but in the small print for the app that it states that your photographs then become the property of the company that actually owns FaceApp, which is based in Russia and therefore not subject to a lot of the like, so the GDPR requirements that we would have in Europe. And it's really caused some people some quite serious concern because it's very wide, the way that that wording is written, it's very widely scoped in terms of what they could potentially use that for. So having reflected a lot on, on this in the sense of the development context, I suddenly went, well, actually, maybe we are not quite as knowledgeable or as sophisticated in terms of our own understanding of what our photographs could be used for as we might like to be. Absolutely. And I, I think that maybe this comes into another responsibility when we are taking photographs in development contexts and, and sharing those photographs online um, is that maybe we need to do better at tracking where those photographs go because, you know, the people that we were working with have entrusted us with the right to use their image. And 
once that's out of our, you know, once we share that, that to an extent is out of our hands. But we, I think we can think about what kinds of actions can we take to protect that? What are different things that we can be doing? I am not sure if many organizations at this moment are taking steps to monitor or protect that. And I think that that's something that we could be, or the development industry could be doing better um, collectively. And technology might facilitate that in future in terms of likes of AI, maybe able to monitor um, in the background where photographs are going and what they're being used for Absolutely. in a way that as humans, it would be quite hard for us to do. Absolutely. There are already a number of services that are actually available um, for the monitoring and, det- and detection. I didn't know this. Photographs, yes. Right. And um, I expect that a lot of people don't know that that is available and it's probably going to become only more vital going forward. Absolutely. I think it, yeah, I think it really relates to, to the responsibility that um, we have to our subjects to, to make sure that we're using and protecting their identity responsibly. But even as individuals, when you hear horror stories of people finding their photographs on all sorts of websites being used for nefarious purposes, and I mean, obviously catfishing would be probably the best known example of that. So eventually we may be able to track our own photographs and make sure that, that people aren't using them for malicious purposes. Absolutely. To my knowledge, nothing like that does exist yet. And I think there's real room for, for expansion into that. So one area where a number of businesses have encountered issues relates to the use of Photoshop or other software to alter images, for example, to make models appear thinner, skin tones to appear lighter, or products more appealing. From an ethical perspective, what do you think represents good practice in that regard? I think it's quite complicated because obviously with commercial photography, businesses want to put their best foot forward, which is totally understandable. But then you also have the the challenge then of accuracy. You know, are we accurate, accurately representing what we're intending to represent? And that, of course, um, is an ethical, an ethical challenge and an ethical consideration. But I think as well, we need to be very cognizant of what messages we're sending and what kinds of um, things we're reinforcing. So, for example, if we are photoshopping a model to make her look 10 pounds thinner, what are we saying? What messages are we reinforcing about what beauty is and what beauty standards are? I think that this is a really important um, ethical responsibility of, of a lot of organizations that are using photography in this way. So, yeah, there's really multiple issues there. In perhaps the most basic sense, the gulf between, when it comes to products, uh, the gulf between what the consumer is expecting to, when we always think about food in that respect, and you see the, the pictures on the packets, or famously when people go in to order a, a burger in sort of one of the popular chains, that what comes out in its little box is very different and much less appetizing looking than the picture that's up um, above the counter. So it's about giving consumers something that is at least closely resembling what they believe they're going to get. But then that much broader and and perhaps more difficult challenge of what those photographs ultimately represent, what ideals and values um, those organisations are perpetuating and whether that's positive or negative. But I do think I do think there's changes coming and that consumers are demanding more diversity in terms of what businesses are putting out. Absolutely. I think, you know, I think it's Dove who've done a great campaign on um, true beauty or something yes. like that. And that's been, I think, really um, effective and really well received. Um, I think it's also in France that actually now there are laws about, you, you know, you can't Photoshop um, models to be thinner, I believe it is. I need to double check that, but I, I'm pretty sure that that's a law that's recently gone into gone into effect in France. Um, so I do think that there are movements to sort of combat that. And I think that there's also a real um, 
capital that's been put on authenticity. I think people are really uh, beginning to value authenticity, and that's that's a, a word that I keep seeing seeing pop up about talking about photography time and again, uh, just in the past six months, I would say, authenticity has become this new buzzword. And I think that people are, are craving that, especially, yes. you know, when you see sort of things on Instagram that aren't real life, you know, and people say, well, what is, you know? Those are the two words that I'm going to take away from this is while you're involved and um, before you take the photograph, and this was while you're processing it, about having empathy and then making sure that there's authenticity in terms of the end product. Uh, that, that and I think you're absolutely right that we've had so many years now of things being put out that are completely inauthentic, shallow, fake, that now people are having this real desire to come back to a very authentic state, a very real state. And I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there could be um, situations in which authenticity and empathy are not compatible, though. And so I think that that could be a, you know, I think it could be very interesting the different types of ethical scenarios you might see crop up where those sort of come into competition with each other. That's something I talk about a lot when I'm doing trainings is that, you know, we can talk about these ethical principles, right? We might have a principle of accuracy and authenticity and another principle for empathy and dignity. But what happens when what is authentic is not dignified or does not show empathy? Very true. So I think that... Um, as much as these things, we can we can sort of uphold them. I think that we still need that layer of critical thinking about how does this go into practice and what might be a competing responsibility and what is what is the sort of greater good in a given situation. Absolutely, I think that's a really important point that the very authentic image could portray something that really fundamentally damages somebody's dignity uh, that could have very negative and long-term connotations and so empathy might override that so you may not release an exactly. image because the principle of empathy would prohibit you from putting out something that would cause somebody enormous amount of of damage maybe equally there could potentially be circumstances where uh, authenticity might override empathy so you might have empathy for somebody in a situation but there may be such a strong need i'm thinking perhaps a situation where uh it involves uh, maybe a crime or mm -hmm. or some other situation where the public need for that uh photograph to be shown perhaps if it is going to drive change or to draw attention to a particular situation might mean that while you empathize for that person that you still nonetheless believe that the greater good is to be found, the more ethical decision is to put is to release that photograph. But I suppose there's there would be ways that, and I've seen that happen in the past, where they don't perhaps show an individual's face or they they obscure or crop the image. So the power of it is um is still felt, but while you don't actually cause damage to the individuals involved, but it's really complicated. Absolutely, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that it can definitely go both ways, and I think that maybe the situations that might cause me to prioritize empathy or to prioritize um, authenticity or accuracy might be different from the same ones that would cause you to do those things because I think it's all very um, it's all very subjective I think where where we draw those lines. it's not an easy job for no. a photographer <laughs> particularly in sort of high stress and um, complex situations do you think it's possible or even desirable to try and develop a code of ethics for photographers I think might be possible down the road and I think that that might be a good thing to have however um, I very much veer away from 
sort of guidelines and the trainings that I do with individual photographers. Although I, I do help organizations to create organizational guidelines, and I think that um, that's a, sort of a different thing because that's the organization's use of photographs. But I think when we're talking about individual photographers, things are very very personal and very subjective and very contextual. So I I would struggle to even think of one sort of criteria that is always universally going to hold and as the most ethical response. You know, I think that when we go into situations, sometimes it's not ethical to obscure someone's face in a sensitive context. You know, sometimes that person might want to show their face, yes. you know? And so if your if your guideline says, you know, if it's a compromising situation, you must obscure their face. Well, if the individual wants to be yes. identified and wants to be seen, then you can't um, make them invisible or take away their identity. That would be unethical, you know? So I, I do think, um, I do think it's very context specific. I think, our ethical decisions are also very much informed by our own life experiences, our own personal values, our own um, artistic vision or idea of sort of our our impact or our intention. And I think that all of these things sort of come into play every time you make an ethical decision, whether or not we're aware of it. And you can apply so much of that to other business contexts, absolutely, that there is a growing recognition that while codes of ethics, codes of conduct can be hugely valuable, um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't argue that they don't have sort of huge value in many organisations, that we equally need to look at a behavioural and values-based approach to ethics as well for those particular situations, those difficult challenges where code of ethics is not going to help someone. Absolutely. This is why I talk all the time about ethical literacy. I think what we need is increased ethical literacy for people who are taking and sharing photographs. I think that it's it's that sort of critical lens, the critical thinking about how we apply these ethical principles in different situations that is really the key. And a loop of learning so that when when there is some knowledge is gathered that there's some mechanism within organization for the individual but also within organizations to feed that back in and say, well, this is what worked, this is what didn't work, this is what we should do differently in future. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's something that I've seen quite a lot, especially when we, you know, if we go back to thinking about development contexts, is that, you know, sometimes the people who are writing guidelines for development photography are not the same people who are implementing it. Absolutely. You know, and, and maybe that isn't, you know, if they write up a four page contract that that you need signed for every person you take a photograph of in English, you know, it's not even translated into the local language, you know, that isn't applicable, that that isn't relevant, and it isn't ethical to use something like that in a context where people maybe aren't comfortable with contracts, aren't literate, aren't uh, Anglophone, you know, there, there are many levels to that, which maybe on at an organizational or institutional level, that's maybe the most comfortable thing or most legally binding thing, but it isn't relevant, it isn't practical, and it isn't ethical to implement that on the ground. That's certainly something we've seen before in other business contexts too, where whoever has drafted the code of ethics or code of conduct are not the people who are actually out on the ground. And it's particularly problematic if you're dealing with an organisation that works in multiple different countries. You can't create or it's very, very difficult to create an effective one size fits all uh, code of ethics or code of, of conduct. And I think the more people that you could have involved in that and in the context of photography, that would be the people who are actually out taking the photographs need to be involved in that process. Absolutely. I, I think that maybe organizations could do more to take on board. Like a lot of times the photographers who are hired by development organizations are, are freelance. You know, they're not 
oftentimes not officially employed within the organization. Yes. And that puts the photographer in a, not in a real position of any sort of power to say, hey, you know, the process that you're asking me to implement is not okay. It's not working. Um, and so I think that maybe organizations could do more to listen to photographers or to make themselves available for uh, feedback on, on how, you know, their process is working. And perhaps other stakeholders as well, so people who are actually being photographed absolutely. to get their views, to get their opinions and feed that in. Yeah, absolutely. There was a really interesting report that was produced by Save the Children on, I think it's titled The People in the Pictures. And that's a really interesting example of a qualitative study that was done to go back to the people who are uh, shown in their uh, different campaigns and and get their input on how they feel Fantastic. about how they're represented. And th- there's a very interesting report. I'd, I'd encourage you to look at it. Certainly. And if I can get hold of a copy of it, I'll put it in the show notes for the podcast so anybody else can go on and have a look. So just bringing things to a close, I just wondered if there's any questions we could ask ourselves when selecting a photograph, say, for example, to use in promotional material that can help us make better decisions. So thinking about me in the context of, of the management school in Queens, but anybody else working in, in other organisations in the in the private sector, public sector, or in third sector organisations that we could reflect on before we select the images that we're going to use? I think there are many, many questions <laughs> we could ask ourselves. Um, if I had to identify just a couple, um, I might go back to something that I, I think I said earlier, which is, you know, what kind of message am I sending? I think that that's quite, um, quite at the center of any time we represent something. We are, we might be invoking stereotypes. We might be relying on certain visual tropes. And I think it's very important that we become aware and sensitive to what our visual language is saying about the people or things in our pictures. Um, so I think thinking very critically about the messages that we're sending before we put it out into the world is is really critical. Um, of course, you know, there are sort of the more sort of fundamental or more basic questions about, you know, do I have consent to take this photograph? Do I have consent to share this photograph? You know, consent to take a photograph is not the same as consent to share a photograph. Um, I think it's important to make sure that we have consent for the many different layers um, involved in that. And, you know, as well just is, you know, our caption accurate? Does my photograph accurately represent what I set out to represent? Um, so I think there are, there are many questions, but those are maybe maybe the key ones to look out for. Absolutely. I think it's a really good starting point if we can have those in mind whenever we are selecting and using photographs. It could potentially prevent a lot of problems and also help us put out content that we feel more proud of. Absolutely. Absolutely. So finally, at the end of each podcast, I ask the guests the same question. What do you think it means to be a good business today, either generally or in the context of photography ethics? Um, I think, well, in, in the context of photography ethics, I think any time an organization is taking and using photographs, it's good to have an ethical uh, basis for doing so, an ethical understanding of the guidelines um, to make sure that the staff is not just ticking the box on the guidelines, but internalizing them. And so I think that, you know, basically, you know, respecting people's dignity in the photographs that we take and share as an organization uh, is really important. More broadly, I would say that I think think that social enterprise is really the only way forward. Um, I founded the Photography Ethics Center. Um, I run and I operate a social enterprise model with the Photography Ethics Center. And I think that um, this goes beyond CSR, beyond, you know, any of sort of the tokenistic maybe uh, ways that that social enterprise has been uh, or not social enterprise, but corporate responsibility has been implemented in the past. I think social enterprise is just 
um, an important model for both the sustainability of an organization, but also for the sustainability of impact. Yes, absolutely. Savannah, thank you for agreeing to take part today and thank you to the audience for listening. For more information on the Good Business Podcast and our other work related to ethics, responsibility and sustainability, you can follow us on Twitter at QUBethics or email ers at qub.ac.uk. And again, thank you, Savannah, for some really thought-provoking discussion. Thank you again for having me. Thank you.